Hi there, Duncan Green here with Development Nutshell, the roundup of um, ideas and conversations on the From Poverty to Power blog for this week. First up, we had Vanessa Dasa Castillo, uh, uh, a Colombian lawyer, writing about um, some really interesting Colombian activism using music and arts to call for climate action. Um, and this all emerged from a really interesting court case. Uh, in 2017, the Colombian Supreme Court recognized the Amazon as a legal entity, um, which required certain ex- sort of increased protection from government. And that case was brought by 25, 17, 7 to 26 year old Colombians. So a very young group of um, activists who used the, the judicial activism to, to get a result. And Vanessa talked to uh, and was looking at two of them, which who she found particularly interesting. The first was Yuli Correa, a 19-year-old psychology student from the Amazon town of Florencia. Um, and she was faced with a situation where being an activist in Colombia is actually very dangerous. 700 social activists have been killed in the last three years. And her response was to um, take to painting. So she's developed a whole school of uh, murals and street arts to get the message across. And it's not just the actual art, but the the process and the conversations with communities about the painting, which actually starts to get the message over around climate action. The second person um, highlighted by Vanessa was um, Yurichel Rodriguez, a 24-year-old engineer from the Caribbean island of Providencia, who is a music a musician and has set up a band called La Banda del Buda Blues, um, and they use musical activism and, and song to get people talking about air pollution, riding bikes, taking action on climate and so on. So it was just a nice, It was a. Her, she opens by saying, you know, there's more to climate activism than social media and school strikes. And here's some of the things that are going on on the ground in Colombia, which was really nice. Then the next day, um, I came across a speech by David Miliband, the former British Foreign Secretary, now running an, an NGO called the, a very large American NGO called the IRC. Um, he gave a speech to the West Point class of 1983, which I'm not exactly sure, but I presume that's a bunch of people who, who um, qualified from West Point in 1983. So they must be very senior military figures or a lot of a lot of them are now. And he, the speech had all the usual rigmarole of, you know, making connection with the institution and the politeness and the protocol and all the rest of it but inside it halfway down there was a really interesting summary of six ways conflict is changing so I pulled those out of the speech for a blog and here are the six the first is the rise of non-state actors so yeah armed groups and violence uh, whether uh, prompted by religion by commercial interests by criminal interests or a combination of the three the second is the use of proxies and partner forces. Um, this is nothing new. You know, I, I cut my teeth in Central America where the US was using proxy forces in Nicaragua. But it's got bigger and more and more countries are doing it. So you can look at what's going on in the Yemen right now as a proxy battle between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example. The third is urban conflict. So 85% of armed conflicts are now taking place in urban areas, according to Miliband. And the nature of urban conflict is nastier. It involves a lot of sieges, a lot of hunger. It involves using citizens and civilians as um, uh, a factor of war. Much higher civilian casualties in, in conflict in urban areas. It's just got very, very messy. The conflicts are also lasting longer. 
15 to 20 year, year conflicts are the norm. And in many cases, it's not so much whether conflicts end, but how they morph and evolve over time, which is the, uh, which is the defining feature. Fifth, they're diversifying. So you've got the big internationalized civil wars like Yemen and Syria. You've got state violence against unorganized civilians in places like Myanmar. You've got communal violence in places like Nigeria, criminal gang violence with no political motivation really involved in Central America, state-sponsored militias uh, rampaging around in places like Burundi. So you've got a sort of big increasing typology of conflict types. And then finally, contagion, that um, the number of countries is going up uh, because so many countries have been sucked into these conflicts. I thought he also did the obligatory, so what does this all mean for us, which I thought was actually not that interesting and not that strong. So I concentrate on the on this kind of x-ray of the nature of conflict, which I thought was really good. Next up, I stumbled across, Oxfam produces a lot of stuff and I can't keep abreast of it all, but I come across things every now and then which really intrigue me. And this one was um, the Oxfam Guide to market, Market-Based Programming. And what they what it's saying is that especially when you're responding to an emergency or a disaster of some kind, be aware that markets are going to be there. Markets are resilient, adaptable. I remember somebody saying once, if you're against markets, it's like being against conversation. So markets are the way people relate to each other and you know and 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 satisfy their needs. They have lots of benefits compared to aid in the more command and control form. They're often cheaper. There's more dignity for people to be able to choose what they buy rather than being given stuff by aid agencies. Uh, and they bring people together, you know, in, in to, to 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 transact and to to to, to trade. So the Oxfam guide is it says a lot about do no harm. So, so you know, if you, when you're going in, don't don't imagine that there is nothing going on in these communities. There will be trade. So make sure that what you do doesn't undermine that trading system, which is so important to the resilience of the community. Analyze the market, and then either use it, support it, or develop it. And they've got examples of the, of the what those three different kinds of market response, market programming. Uh, involve and then some nice examples from Zimbabwe and South Sudan but what I also really liked was actually the the format which was almost like a graphic novel very little text lots of lots of nice little cartoons and graphics and I thought very good easy communication device a really a really nice piece of work <clears throat> and then the last two posts of the week were from a conference I went to in The Hague last week um, on pushing the boundaries in advocacy for inclusion um, and there, I, I, there were two different aspects of the conference which got me uh, got me thinking, and so I did a post on each. The first one was um, when I suddenly realised I, I was being a total hypocrite, not for the first time. So you know, I always I've been very critical of academics over the years um, for the way they write about aid, for their attitudes toward towards the aid sector. You know, they tend to think, or at least. Uh, behave as if they think that everybody in the aid sector is either dumb or evil or both. Um, and they write about um, aid without ever reading, and they write about NGOs without ever reading what we write, without ever even talking to us quite often. And it just really gets under my skin. But then uh, I, I had a sort of rant about this at the conference, and a, an academic called Willem Elbers came up and said, that's fantastic. I realise now that I'm a bit like you just described. So what should I do? 
you know, let's actually come up with some construct, constructive roles for academics. And I, th- and I thought, wow, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm behaving just like the people I'm criticising in that all I'm doing is taking down academia rather than saying, well, what should they do better? And um, so Willem and I sort of talked at the conference and then continued our email and we identified 10 sort of ways that academics can support practitioners. You can be an inspirer like Robert Chambers. So rather than sort of take down different forms of aid and different forms of NGO activity, you can actually inspire with a vision, uh, an alternative vision in, in, in Robert's case of, part of the power of participation. So you can be an inspirer. You can be a critical friend or mentor. You know, you can accompany practitioners, you know, listen to them, ask intelligent questions, help them sort of get better. You can be a storyteller and a praise singer. You can watch what's going on understand it and then tell people tell the rest of the world about it you can be a connector academics are often working in lots of different contexts and they can say well have you thought about this have you talked to this person so that sort of bridging role um one of the things which academics could do better i think is to say what can you do within the existing constraints there's always a bit of wiggle room however tight the rules are academics tend to just denounce the fact that rules exist but they can also equally help you think about how do you get better results within those existing rules my last one i did six and willem uh, had four my last one i've actually got double uh, mixed feelings about which is a codifier so yeah you can come in practitioners are often doing things through instinct they're coming up with it sort of implicit uh, or sort of tacit ideas that work and if you go and look at it you can pin it down and turn it into a thing which is some of the work i've been doing on adaptive management and thinking working politically and that ought to help good ideas spread, but actually I'm getting I'm, I'm increasingly doubtful about this because it also helps loads of other people mimic it without really doing it. You know, isomorphic mimicry is the phrase. Um, everybody adopts the vocabulary, but nobody actually changes anything, and it becomes dumbed down. And uh, so I've got a sort of mixed feelings about the codify role. Willem came up with four additional roles, showing the bigger picture. You know, that practitioners are not always. What they think is common sense might actually come from a particular place. So as he says, academics can show that seemingly neutral discussions about enhancing effectiveness are actually not so neutral after all. There's a whole bunch of um, ideas and, and, and concepts behind that. He thinks academics can ask more painful, more pointed questions than practitioners who tend to not to want to rot the boat. They don't want to damage their own organisation. Academics can really sort of put the finger in the sore, as they say in Spanish, and really sort of, you know, twist the knife and say, OK, but, you know, what you're really doing is this. And that can be very useful. Um, I actually increasingly think that the big impact of academics is through their students. So inspiring the change agents of the future. So often underestimated when people talk about you know, the impact of academia, but that's obviously a massive role. And Willem's involved in a really good program called AMIT in, 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 in the Netherlands, which uh, is doing just that. And I'm doing something a bit not quite as ambitious, but I do that kind of thing with my LSE students. And then the final one he, he identifies is making existing knowledge accessible. You know, that practitioners don't have the time or interest to read these great long reports or papers. They're often very jargony. So there's a translation job there for sympathetic academics. I'm sure there's lots more roles. There's, there's quite a few more coming in already on comments on the blog, which I think is going to be a, uh, one of those ones that, that runs and runs. So do feel free to come and add. And then the final post of the week was an uncomfortable conversation at this conference in The Hague. 
Um, the conference was interesting. It, there was a very high degree of um, research input, a lot of researchers there. Um, and they were one of the things they raised is how good is Ada actually reaching the ultra poor? And they asked some painful questions, a bit sort of illustrating what Willem had, had said in the previous post. Because um, the answer is often that not just aid, but civil society organisations are actually not very good at reaching the really, really poor. And the main group that was being discussed in The Hague was people with disabilities. Um, and the things that the researchers have found is advocacy catch, capture, where someone says, I'm, I'm, I'm representing these people, you know, and I have an NGO and come support me and fund me and all the rest of it. But the actual links are much weaker than they paint, than the, they make out. But the social movements themselves are often very weak and fragmented. So lots of interesting research on how different people with different kinds of disabilities tend not to work very well together. They identify the visually impaired as often having been better organized and having better access to funding and not particularly wanting to work with other people with other kinds of disability. And also, and this is where it gets painful, is um, they, they, they question the level of power within, the level of self-confidence in a lot of um, uh, people with disabilities who who had internalized you know a bit a bit of the sort of Foucault problem, which is often raised in condition to uh, in, a, in in connection to gender, they'd internalized the idea that disability is inability. So there's some very very important sort of awareness raising and shifting of social norms within people with disabilities themselves as well as within the wider community. So this was. Um, and that, that got onto a wider conversation about how social move, movements evolve over time. They tend to emerge in, a, in an act of protest or a, a splitting off from a bigger group, which has not really dealt with the, the needs of this particular you know, um, subgroup, um, with short-term aims and sort of often a lot of energy. But as they mature, mature they often want to get into longer-term questions of advocacy, changing public policy, and that needs skills and structures and charismatic leaders. And that all comes with, with risks. The risks that you turn into a briefcase NGO where the leader has a briefcase with a project in it, but no members. Um, political capture by politicians, especially of the charismatic leaders. Really difficult questions on what to do. Well, the, you know, social movements can, can, to a certain extent, insulate themselves by their design, by the level of inclusivity in, their, in, in the way they operate, their constitutions. Um, aid agencies need to really rethink how they support social movements so as not to actually accelerate this process and preferably to, 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 to prevent it. Things like giving aid in lots of small amounts rather than big dollops, helping social movements raise money locally rather than remain dependent on aid. And that just feels like a conversation I've had a lot over the last few years. It feels like aid is at a crossroads that it keeps banging up against the same sort of issues about the political economy and the institutions of aid are actually preventing us achieving the aims of aid and that we need to do something about that. And the conversation keeps stopping there. And I think unless we actually find a way to break through and start demonstrating that large scale aid organizations can do it better, we're gonna, we risk actually um, the whole aid uh, project becoming discredited. Some people may say that's not a problem, but I think the aid project could, has done a lot of good, is doing a lot of good, and could do a lot more good, but is facing some a real crunch moment. And with on that, I shall leave you. Have a great weekend.